In July, the state of Oklahoma set execution dates for 25 people, all of whom have been on death row for years, some decades. The first person the state intends to kill is James Coddington. I asked Sister Helen Prejean, America's leading advocate against the death penalty, to tell me about him. I'm going to start with where James Coddington is right now. Oklahoma has the added cruelty. When a person's going to be killed by the state, 35 days ahead of time, they send them into this cell right adjacent to the killing chamber. It's totally made of stone. The bed is stone. Everything in it is stone. And there are several video cameras trained on you, watching you every second. When you breathe, when you go to the toilet, watching you, and you can hear the sounds very clearly coming from next door as they get the gurney ready, as they do their practice things to kill you. In 1997, Coddington killed his friend Albert Hale with a hammer. At the time, Coddington was addicted to drugs, and Hale refused to buy him more. In a recent hearing, Coddington delivered a five-minute presentation to the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board. He said, I can't apologize enough for what I did. Hale was one of my friends, and he tried his best to help me. And for that, he lost his life. So James Coddington, he is one of the most remorseful people. I mean, what's the blooming criteria to kill people supposed to be? The worst of the worst, right? Supposedly for the death penalty, the reason that the Supreme Court is saying that we have to terminate the lives of some people is they're so unredeemable. We can't even trust putting them in prison for life because they kill other people, they'll kill other inmates. Sister Helen Prejean has made it her life's work to advocate for people who have been deemed the worst of the worst. She supports death row inmates by sharing their whole life stories with the world. In Coddington's case, he grew up in abject poverty. When he was a toddler, his mother was incarcerated and his father, who was dealing with substance abuse himself, put alcohol into Coddington's baby bottles. From childhood until his murder conviction at 24, Coddington struggled with drug addiction. Over 90% of people on death row were abused as children, witnessed violence as children, and what they witnessed and what they suffered is what they take out on others. It's a terrible crime they do. But mitigating circumstances are supposed to be what you look at in a person's life. Is this person so totally evil? are incapable of change, that we have to kill them. A few weeks ago, the Board of Pardons and Parole recommended that Coddington's death sentence be reduced to life in prison. But Governor Kevin Stitt has yet to make a decision on this recommendation, and time is running out. Today on the show, Oklahoma could begin a two and a half year execution spree as soon as this week. Many of the men who are scheduled to die have severe mental illness, history of abuse in their youths, or had inadequate legal representation. And some have even maintained their innocence. Filling in for Mary Harris, I'm Mary C. Curtis. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. Let's talk a little bit about 
Oklahoma because it is a special case. The state has never scheduled this many executions all at once before. You've talked some about where they live and those conditions, but why now do you think? Is there anything unique about Oklahoma's approach to and history of executions? When people have jobs, when people have good education, you know, when they have health care, when they have what they need, they are not as prone as a people to want to have, you know, harsh, harsh penal system and the death penalty. So this brings us to the people of Oklahoma. And when you come to a people and it, where they are so strong and supporting law and order, really, really tough penal system, throwing people away in prison, long sentences, a lot of death penalties. Almost always when you look into the soil of the people, you're going to see that there are a lot of justice issues for the people, social needs that people have. So you have to look at a political climate in a place. You have to look at law and order and when politicians get elected to office, who benefits from this? So you always have to look at what is the political situation of the attorney general, of the governor? We even actually have stats showing that in an election year, prosecutors seek the death penalty more. Another person set to be executed in Oklahoma is Richard Glossop. Originally, he was scheduled to die on September 22nd, but Republican Governor Stitt just granted a 60-day reprieve. Over the more than two decades he's been on death row, Glossop has maintained his innocence and the details surrounding Glossop's guilt for a 1997 murder are murky. First of all, he wasn't the one who actually did the killing. No physical evidence connects him to the murder, but Glossop's co-defendant, Justin Sneed, who actually carried out the killing with a baseball bat, has said that Glossop hired him to do it. Now, Glossop contends that Sneed implicated him to personally avoid the death penalty. There's also the issue of the trial. Glossop had to be tried twice for this crime because the first conviction was thrown out on account of ineffective defense counsel. Listen, I am deep in the case of Richard Glossop. I had heard a little bit from people that were on Richard's side, told me a little bit about the case. And then I get the phone call from Richard Glossop. And here was the phone call. Sister Ellen, I apologize. I know I didn't ask you permission or anything, but I know it looks like the state of Oklahoma is going to uh, execute me. Would you mind being with me? I think you could help me. And I had a conversation with him. And I said, Richard, of course I'll be with you. Then I get in bed that night. Now, here's how things happen inside of me. I know by now how broken the Bloom system is. I know that man, in all probability, did not get good defense. His side of the story really didn't come out. Anyway, after that phone call, I wake up, bolt away, two o'clock in the morning. And I know in conscience what I got to do. I know how broken it is. And I know this man's probably innocent. It's been a long time. It's going to be really hard. I start calling resources. I know we got to start getting the word out. I had learned this from Amnesty International, that when things look all signed, sealed, and delivered, what you have to do is create doubt. We got to start getting his story out in the media. And then I appeal to contacts with Pope Francis. 
I knew if anybody was against the death penalty and on the side of vulnerable, marginated, thrown away, despised people, it's going to be Pope Francis. Richard Glossop has come so close to execution that he's had his last meal three times. Over the years, he's gained a lot of support. Celebrity advocates like Susan Sarandon and, recently, unlikely allies in dozens of Oklahoma Republicans who are otherwise pro-death penalty. They, alongside some of their Democratic colleagues, recently commissioned an independent investigation of the case, which pointed to Glossop's lack of involvement in the killing. One pro-death penalty Oklahoma Republican even said, if we put Richard Glossop to death, I will fight in this state to abolish the death penalty, simply because the process is not pure. Oh man, that time when Richard came so close for the third time of being killed, and he was in that stone cell waiting to be killed. The man ahead of him, Charles Warner, who had been killed just a couple of months before, they had used the wrong drug. And Charles Warner was crying out, there's acid in my veins. And the Supreme Court has allowed that states can experiment with drugs. So Oklahoma has this history of botching executions in Charles Warner and happened right before Richard Glossop. I was waiting to be brought in with the witnesses to be able to be with Richard. And we waited, we waited, and it was supposed to be at this time. And then it's 15 minutes later, then it's a half hour, an hour later, the van doesn't come for us, the witnesses. What's going on? But then it all came out. That same wrong drug that they'd used on Charles Warner, they were going to use on Richard, and they didn't dare do it because of the world attention in Richard's case, and that's what saved his life that time. Glossop was also involved in a lawsuit related to the drugs used in lethal injection. In it, attorneys for him and others on death row argued that the use of the current cocktail could cause severe pain, needless suffering, and a lingering death. I asked Sister Helen about how Oklahoma ended up with this lethal injection formula that's been at the center of botched executions. So here you have, if the state decides, okay, we can't get the the deep drug anesthetic that we used to get for Europe because the European company that made the drug realized that their drugs were being used not for people during surgery, and for compassionate reasons, but to kill people. So they pull that drug off the market. As the European Union, we say no to the death penalty. Pharmaceutical companies are also increasingly opposing the use of their products for capital punishment. The European Union already bans the export of such products. Pharmaceutical company Pfizer has announced it is blocking the use of its drugs for lethal injections in the United States. The move means that all approved drug makers whose medications could be used for executions have now put them off limits. States that still had the death penalty on the books had to scramble to find alternative drugs for executions. Oklahoma goes for my dazzle. Here's the key thing. That a person has to be deep enough under that when they inject that potassium chloride to stop the heart, which is the real killer, they got to be deep enough under that they don't feel it, or they might be called cruelty, right? 
Shortly after Oklahoma began pumping a lethal combination of drugs into the arm of convicted murderer Clayton Lockett, something went wrong. He mumbled and wiggled around. Forty-three minutes passed before he was pronounced dead. Death penalty opponents sued, saying the first of three drugs failed to render him unconscious, exposing him to intense pain, cruel and unusual punishment. The Supreme Court of the United States now has to become pharmacologists and make a decision about which one they think is right about how you can kill a person. And it rests with the Supreme Court of the United States that cannot recognize that taking a conscious, imaginative human being and putting them in a cell for 20 years and taking them out and killing them is not an act of torture and is not a cruel act. As if we don't understand that human beings cannot be identified with a single act and that they can grow and that they can change. As if we don't humanly evolve. How do you think these cases are going to turn out, in your opinion? And because you know that sometimes these end in executions. No, often they do. I'm hopeful. The reason I'm hopeful is that the Court of Appeals in Oklahoma, and you can't discount all the publicity given this case, have offered to hear. And, and I don't know if the word is at this stage legally to grant an evidentiary hearing, but they have offered an openness to listen to what the investigation committee came out from that Houston law firm, Reed and Smith, of the pages and pages of all that the jury never heard in the original trial. And basically the argument, it was not a fair trial, which it's constitutional right. And I'm hopeful. After the break... Sister Helen Prejean addresses the toll the process takes on the families of victims of violent crime, and she considers the racial injustice of the death penalty. Now, your work, as you've expressed, is grounded in faith. But it's also true that many people of sincere faith have reached very different conclusions when it comes to the death penalty. What would you say to them? For a long time, I I didn't question the death penalty. I mean, the Catholic teaching was enough. Well, these people do these crimes, and so they pay for their crimes. And I didn't question it. But I believe you can change and you can grow in your religious understanding. I did. Faith in Jesus means more than just praying for people and being charitable to the people around me, but working for justice. That I was 40 years old before I woke up to that. I believe in waking up. All the deep spiritual traditions at heart are always about compassion more than vengeance. Look at Buddhism. Every chapter of the Quran begins with the mercy of God. Mercy, mercy. So is mercy this pound of flesh, you kill, we kill you. So I think human beings, we're all human, right? So that's the approach I take to people when they come out with this very truncated or or this thing of, yeah, Jesus is all for the death penalty. James Coddington's victim's son opposes Coddington's petition for clemency. So I asked Sister Helen what she thinks about the families of victims who want their loved one's killer to be executed. What happens, I've noticed in victims' families, is this is very, it's public, see? It's public. The way you honor your dead loved one is 
You buy into what the state is telling you. This is what the consequences have to be. Look what we're subjecting victims' families to, to witness the violence of the state, the killing of another human being, and told this is what will bring you peace, and this is what will honor your brother. Look how writ large violence is in this whole scheme of justice. How could it possibly bring peace? Maybe a momentary satisfaction. Yeah, we got to watch that person die. And then in the days afterwards, what happens inside them, how could that possibly satisfy the human soul that by watching the death of the person who has killed your loved one, it could ever bring you peace. But they get caught publicly that if they say they're not for that, it can look like they're dishonoring their loved one. I also wanted to ask about a piece that you've also talked about, another awakening you had, uh, both Coddington and Glossop are white. And you've talked about how race plays a part in the criminal justice system and punishment in this country. And you said this as someone who grew up in a segregated society uh, in the South and only began to interrogate the injustice as an adult. So what have you discovered in your work about this connection? Oh, big time. Oh, God. Overwhelmingly. Race plays a part in the death penalty and in the penal system in the United States. You know, uh, eight out of every 10 people of the over 1,500 people who've been executed in this country, eight out of every 10 is because they killed a white person. What does worst of the worst really boil down to? Starting point. Was the person white or not? Who's outraged over their death? Who cares? What status does a victim have for some prosecutor to go to the ultimate and all the expense of seeking the death penalty? I want to talk about another court decision, which is to overturn Roe v. Wade. And the country's been debating what it means to be pro-life. But the death penalty isn't a part of that conversation because people distinguish between what they call innocent life and those on death row, but should it be? Man, this it was the heart of my dialogue with Pope John Paul II. I got a chance to have a direct dialogue. And that's exactly what I said to the Pope. I said, you're holding this. I meet a lot of Catholics and they say they're pro-life. But when you talk to them, pro-life means they're for pro-innocent life. They're all against abortion, okay? But then when it comes to the death penalty, but I've been with people executed. I've walked with a man shackled hand and foot and it's, we're walking to the execution chamber where he's going to be electrocuted to death. And he turns to me and he says, sister, please pray God holds up my legs. I said, your holiness, where is the dignity in rendering a human being defenseless and taking his life deliberately. Where's the dignity in that? Does the church only uphold the dignity of innocent life? And what about guilty life? So pro-life, and this is every talk I give in every place, to be pro-life across the board, first of all, is to be for the life of unborn children being born, but then after they are born, that they have what they need as human beings. Children, children need help. Children need health care. Mothers need help. To be pro-life is to mean that you have what you need for life, not simply to be born, but the mothers 
the care for children after they're born and not to make a distinction, I'm pro-innocent life, but then I'm for the state killing people because they are guilty of a crime. And Sister Helen, as we're talking about what's going to happen next, and you're very involved in the Oklahoma situation, uh, what is the way to a solution in this continuing discussion, fight, debate over the death penalty? What is an answer if we can't get to, to the answer? It's just what we're doing here in Slate. We're telling stories and we're getting information to people. And it, it's a hopeful thing. Um, we're not despairing that people can't change. People can. And so what you're doing, your work, you're doing, and why I said yes, of course, that I wanted to talk to you today, is we have to keep getting stories to the people, but not just statistics and facts. It has to be through story. Because story opens up an avenue of compassion in people's hearts as they can hear a story and get the fuller picture. They can come to a new understanding of consciousness and conscience. And that's what we got to keep doing, just what you're doing. Well, I want to thank you, Sister Helen Prejean, for coming on What Next to talk about what's going on in Oklahoma and also to talk about your life and your work, which I guess they're one and the same. No, well, you know, your life's always a little broader than your work. But I mean, the passion and the soul. And thank God I woke up. It's a grace to wake up. I could have gone my whole life because I was very protected. And, you know, uh, anyway, I'm just glad to be awake. And so with those of us, especially those who have had privilege, who've been educated, uh, you know, been given a lot, I feel a special responsibility to give back to my society in every way I can, to be an integral part of this democracy, of this being a part of the American people. I feel a special obligation to do that. Well, thank you, Sister Helen, for sharing with the listeners of What Next. Thank you. Bye-bye. Sister Helen Prejean is the author of Dead Man Walking, The Death of Innocence, and River of Fire. Her life's work is to abolish the death penalty in the United States. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Carmel Del Shad, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting a ton of help from Anna Rubinova, Anna Phillips, and Jarrett Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. Filling in for Mary Harris, I'm Mary C. Curtis columnist for Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. We'll be back in this feed tomorrow. Talk to you then.